Well, as John said, my name's Dan, and it's great to see you here this morning, especially if you're visiting us. We do love to welcome people here. Good to see some old friends here as well. Friends from the past, not old in referring to anything in particular. Sorry, Keith. Um, but uh, yes, it's good to be together this morning. Now, we've just prayed, and we've talked a lot about prayer, but if we conducted a survey, I wonder how we would all rate our personal prayer lives, out of ten maybe. If we did a survey, how do you rate your personal prayer life? Or what about our corporate prayer life together as a church? How should we rate that? For some reason, we generally struggle with prayer. Not all of us. Some of you set an example for the rest of us to follow in prayer. But for many of us, this will be an area where we would readily acknowledge there's much room for improvement. Some of us will be unsure of what it is to pray and be unclear on what basis we approach God, if he's there at all. But this morning, as we continue our series in Luke, Luke is one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. As we continue our series going through Luke's gospel this morning, we're going to see three principles that Jesus taught about prayer. This isn't everything there is to know about prayer. This isn't everything Jesus taught about prayer. But I think there's stuff here that will make a big difference in our prayer lives. So firstly, and we're in Luke chapter 18, sorry I should say that, Luke chapter 18, which is on page 1052 if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. And we're going to look at from verses 1 uh, right through to verse 17. But for now, Luke chapter 18 verses 1 to 8, where first of all we see that Jesus teaches us to persistently cry for God's justice. Persistently cry for God's justice. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God, or care what people think. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What's this story about? Well, you might have spotted Luke's clue. It was rather subtle in verse 1. Did you see it? Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. It's great when we're trying to understand the Bible to look out for parts where the authors tell us why something is there. So Jesus told this parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. Always here is more in the sense of at all times. Uh, Not not in the sense, sorry, of at all times constantly. But more a sense of again and again and again and again. And it's praying about something in particular as well. This isn't Jesus saying, not, not that we can't pray about everything all the time. God says that elsewhere. But this isn't Jesus saying a blanket promise to pray or nag God for anything all the time. This is a prayer specifically about justice, justice 
for God's people. And uh, part of what Jesus has been talking about before now is kind of hinting at injustice, at problems that injustice that God's people will suffer, like Jesus himself was about to suffer. So this is a prayer to pray again and again about in the face of injustice as God's people. I was reading this week in a, a Christian newspaper um, just about uh, this organization that's been set up, the Religious Liberty Commission, and this article is how millions of Christians are persecuted every day because of their faith. In Syria, it is believed that of the Christian population has fled the country, in Nigeria, Boko Haram militants are attacking Christian communities with up to 2,000 people feared dead after a massacre in the northeastern town of Baga in January. According to this new commission, Christians are subject to violence, intimidation, and discrimination in more than 50 countries for trying to exercise their free choice of believing in Jesus. The vast majority of those facing persecution are Christians worldwide, a staggering 76% of the world's population live in countries with high restrictions on religious freedom. But a vast majority of those are Christians. And uh, the article goes on to speak about how in, in, uh, in the Middle East, the kind of birthplace, if you like, of Christianity, the Christian faith is, in their words, in danger of extinction. And there's personal stories as well. There's some big statistics. Some people like the big statistics. But here's personal stories of the church in Eritrea. Uh, this is uh, by someone who is a victim of persecution in Eritrea, one of the world's most repressive regimes. And uh, this uh, guy, the Reverend Dr. Bernhain Asmelash, said, Today in Eritrea, Christians are being persecuted. Many are imprisoned and regularly subjected to starvation, heavy labor, and solitary confinement. Prison could be an underground pit or a metal shipping container. Torture is frequent. People are tied by both hands and legs and are hung on trees for hours or days. One form of hanging is the Jesus Christ, which looks like a crucifix. I was arrested and tortured with a number eight. They tie your arms and put a log under your knees. Many years later, I still feel a numbness on the back of my hand. And we could go on. And this paper is full of stories like that. I'm sure you're aware of many. This is not, this is not some issue from the past. This passage is speaking to us today. We'll see what it's saying in a moment. We won't feel the force of this passage if we think of a widow in the UK in 2015, a widow with the security of the state welfare system, maybe even a pension of her own. The widow of Jesus' story pictures someone in desperate need, like believers in Jesus living in a hostile world, like those believers in Eritrea. Widows were frequently quite young in this culture where women married at the age of 13 or 14 and so here's this helpless, powerless woman appealing over and over again to someone who has the authority and the power to vindicate her, to, to answer, to give her justice. And this judge who is unjust, who doesn't care what people think, and he doesn't care what God thinks, so there's not much that's going to motivate him or change his mind. But eventually he gives in. Uh, so that she won't come and attack me, or the phrase is literally to give someone a black eye. Probably used figuratively here. He doesn't want to be worn down emotionally. She's getting on his nerves. And yet this unjust judge eventually gives in and gives this woman justice. 
Jesus tells this story with this, an argument that's called from the lesser to the greater. Here's this unjust judge who, judge who couldn't care less what people think. And he gives in. Will not God, the just, righteous God, will he not give justice to his people who cry out to him? God has not forgotten them. But there is a hint of a delay here. In fact, we can expect three things from this story. Believers will face injustice in this world. Jesus has just been talking about that already. Here he's underlining that again. And as we've seen, that's still the case today. Believers will face injustice in this world. Believers should pray, should prepare for a delay before he returns and all injustice is vindicated. Before the kingdom comes in its fullness, before God brings justice ultimately and finally. And the third thing, God the righteous judge will hear the believers cry. The believers in Eritrea will be vindicated. God the righteous judge will hear their cry. And he will answer. Maybe not yet. Maybe they'll have to wait through some more pain. But the day is coming. I was speaking with someone on Thursday at our cafe that we heard about earlier. And they were making this point, which is a point that I think most of us will will agree with and will share. That people who, who get away with committing crimes these days... People who, punt, who, who, who hurt people or cheat people or injure people, who abuse people and get away with it. Well, they won't ultimately get away with it. A day is coming where God will judge. But this prayer here that Jesus is encouraging us to pray is a prayer for God's justice. And it's a prayer for the Son of Man, for Jesus. That's the term he used to refer to himself, for the Son of Man to return. And it's not so much an optional prayer. If you're bothered about this, then ask God, then keep asking if you're bothered, if you're interested. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's more of a, we must keep on praying for this again and again. We must keep on praying for this. We must be praying for the persecuted church in Eritrea and all those other countries across the world. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Some of us may be reminded of another place in Luke's gospel in chapter 11 where his disciples asked Jesus how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. The first thing Jesus said was, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That's the prayer. Father, your kingdom come. Bring justice. Bring an end to this suffering and persecution. Someone has said that the faith that the Son of Man will look for when he returns is not simply an identification with his message or just a faith that avoids strange teaching. Rather, the Son of Man will be looking for those who are looking for him. The Son of Man will be looking for those who are looking for him. Those who are longing for his return. Those who are bothered by the injustice and persecution of his people. I wonder if we are keeping watch. You can read in Luke chapter 12 of another story Jesus told about being ready. 
like uh, people keeping their lamps ready or waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door. It will be good for those servants if when their master finds them, when he returns, he finds them watching for him. And Jesus also warns that it won't be good if we're not watching, not waiting. The point is of this first prayer, and I realize this is quite heavy, and we'll get lighter in a moment, but the point of this is that in the midst of persecution and a delay, the disciples should not stop praying for justice and the return that will bring about justice. There's a call to faith here, a call to expectant faith, a call to faith that's bothered. That's the first thing Jesus is teaching us, persistently cry for God's justice. Um, If you want to find out more ways of how to do this, there are organizations that can help you. You can look at Release International or Open Doors or Christian Solidarity Worldwide or other organizations others may know of as well, where you can get prayer information, you can get things to find out and inform ourselves. But we need to be those who are praying, who are persistently crying for God's justice for his people. Secondly, Jesus teaches us to humbly plea for God's mercy. Humbly plea for God's mercy. This is uh, in verses 9 to 14. To some who are confident of their righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, who are these two characters in this story? The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day, strict observers of the law. They'd go out of their ways out of their way to observe God's law. They were upright and decent, don't you know? They were the pillars of society. Unlike the tax collectors, tax collectors were despised. They were the dregs of society, worse than a parking warden from Portsmouth who also works as an estate agent. I'm really sorry if I've just described you. There's always a danger that there's someone here from Portsmouth who's a parking warden and an estate agent. I'm sorry. It's just a a joke. Uh, and I'm sure you break the stereotype and you're really lovely and all of that. But the tax collectors, and this is the tax collectors, not, not estate agents, often cheated people out of money. The tax collectors cheated people out of money. They often take more than they were due from people. They were the agents of Rome, collecting taxes on behalf of the occupying enemy, as the Jewish people saw it. You really couldn't sink much lower than this traitor scum. In fact, He had nerve to go up to the temple at all. God's temple is no place for tax collectors. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, 
or even this tax collector. The Pharisee in this story was confident in his own righteousness. He was confident that he could stand before God based on his own performance. He was a law-abiding pure breed after all. He went above and beyond the law. He fasted twice a week and gave a tenth of all he got. That was more than the law required. He thought God was bound to accept him. God was bound to be impressed with him, isn't he? But Jesus said such a man would be humbled. And note, this isn't just about Pharisees. It's not even about all Pharisees. There's other Pharisees we read of in the New Testament who did come and trust and approach Jesus. Jesus is warning any who are confident in their own righteousness. Any who are confident in their own righteousness. Anyone who is convinced that they are acceptable to God on their own merits. Maybe there are some of us here today who think like this. I'm not that bad. I'm I'm not as bad as him. I'm relatively good, good enough. God is bound to accept my friend request. Maybe some of us have similar contempt for some other, we would say, lesser group of people. It's often said that uh, many Jewish males had the attitude of thanking God that they were not born Gentiles, slaves, or women. I doubt any of us at that extreme. But maybe some of us, perhaps God, perhaps thank God that we're not like those lowlifes, whoever it is we look down on. Not like that geek in my class. Maybe you even react like this to the Pharisee in this story. <laughs> what an idiot. I'm not like this Pharisee. I'm better than that. I don't relate to God like this Pharisee. Or maybe you pray those corrective prayers. You know, the sort of prayer that's really a little sermon where you focus more on correcting the person you're praying with than on asking the God who you're praying to. How different, really, is that kind of praying to the Pharisee who prays out loud in the temple to parade his superior piety, his religiousness, and and dispense advice to those unrighteous sinners who might just hear this great and wise man. And this can also be really subtle. We can fall into self-righteousness very easily. Maybe you don't often pray, I thank you, God, that I'm such a great person. Thank you that I come to Portswood Church every week and serve in many areas of church life. Thank you that I pray for two hours every day. Thank you that I give a significant proportion of my income to your work. Maybe you don't often pray like that. But how do you feel if you skip a quiet time? Or a few weeks worth? Do you feel less confident to approach God? And if so, are you not therefore in that moment basing your standing on God on your own righteousness? I wonder if you ever have days like these. This is a common story which is told. Here's a a day. You wake up late. uh, You put your phone in a glass of water as you're trying to silence the alarm. Uh, It's cloudy and rainy when you open the curtains and look out. You spill coffee. You shouldn't be drinking coffee. Tea's better. You spill coffee on on your jacket when you're just about to go out. You've got no time to read your Bible or to pray. You argue with your family or your flatmates. You miss your bus. You get into college or work late. You have a miserable day. 
and you go to bed feeling distant from God. If you even bother to pray at all, it goes something like, God, I've had a rubbish day. Sorry that I've failed you. I'll try and do better tomorrow. Bless everyone. Amen. But the next day is better. You wake up before your alarm clock to the sound of spring birds and sun beaming through the clear blue sky, pouring warmth and light into your room. You practically leap out of bed, skip out of your room, greeted by the smell of bacon. Someone's cooking you a fry-up. You share the gospel with the person next to you on the bus. They ask to become a Christian there and then. You pray with them. You arrive early to school or work. Your boss notices You lead a scintillating study at your Christian union, and after a quick dinner at home, you spend the night at the church prayer meeting. That night, you go to bed feeling like you're this close to God. Oh yeah, I'm a good Christian. Your prayer that night begins, Most merciful and gracious Father in heaven, I thank you and humbly praise you for your majestic glory and sovereign purposes which you're working out in my life. And after a few minutes of that, you go to sleep justified. On which of those days were you relating to God properly? Neither of them. On both days, you acted as if God accepted you on the basis of your performance, your achievements. How can anyone ever stand before God? A vision was given once to an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. And we can read in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe, as in like the rest of the robe, uh, filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They covered their faces, they wouldn't even look at the Lord of glory. They were calling, what Isaiah says, to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. How can anyone be accepted by God? Yes, we've not all done some of the things Hitler did, maybe. But none of us measure up. No one. No matter how relatively good we are compared to the person next to us, we all fall short. There is only one reason anyone can ever stand before God who is awesome in holiness. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy, grace, God's undeserved favor to those who deserve the opposite. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace. Can we stand? And this side of the cross of Jesus, we know a little bit more about how that's possible. How God can remain just and yet justify sinners. 
like the tax collector, like me, like you. You see, in the cross of Jesus, Jesus bore the punishment that we needed. He took justice for us. And there are two types of people in this room. I'd love to talk to you afterwards if you're not sure which category you fit in or don't feel like you fit in any of them. But there are really only two types of people in this room. Some of us, the first type, need to realize this for the first time. Some of us need to humbly confess our sin to God and ask him for mercy. And by confessing our sin, I I don't mean owning up to stealing that Mars bar from the teacher's desk the other week that no one noticed. I mean confess our utter brokenness and rebellion. Like Isaiah, like the tax collector, see our desperate need of mercy if God is to spare us from destroying us. Perhaps today is the day when you will cry out for the first time to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is a great prayer to use. Those words are easy enough, aren't they? And you can pray them today, trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You can pray today, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you can go home truly justified by Christ, declared righteous, declared to have that perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus. If you do pray this prayer, then I encourage you to talk to someone else about it. We'd love to hear that you've done this, and we'd love to help you in taking the next steps. And if you don't know anyone else to speak to, then I'd be thrilled to meet you in the foyer afterwards, or John, or Rachel, or anyone else you've seen up the front today. I said there are two types of people in this room. The first type need to realize this for the first time. The second type needs to remember this for the nth time. Now, I wonder if I could have a volunteer. Sim, thank you. You looked at the wrong moment. This is a sieve. Okay? Sim, please, perhaps come up here just so you can be visible. This is a sieve. This is a jug. And in this jug is water. Okay? <laughs> well... If you want to take the easy option, there you go. Right, you might be familiar with how a sieve works. It has holes in it. And uh, if I pour this water into this sieve... Oh dear, it's leaking out. Thankfully there's a bowl, but the sieve is not holding any of the water. It's leaking out of it. It was really that simple, thanks very much. That's a bit silly, maybe. Now, I don't mean to mock memory loss. It's a very upsetting thing and a troubling thing to experience and witness. But in a light-hearted, joking context, we might tease someone for being a sieve head if they forget things often or quickly. And there's a sense in which I suspect all of us are sieve heads or sieve hearts. The knowledge of God's grace leaks out of us. Well, it leaks out of me, at least. Maybe you're more watertight than I am. But the knowledge of God's grace leaks out to me. I can slip into the performance trap. I can begin to trust or doubt based on my own merit. What about you? The wonderful thing is that we can come afresh to God today. We can recall his love for us, his grace for us. And we can cry out again, God have mercy on me, a sinner.
you know what? We don't even have to stand at a distance. We don't even have to avoid looking up to heaven like the tax collector. We can dare to boldly approach, boldly approach. Why? Because of self-confidence? No. Because of Jesus' confidence. And so it is that Christians have sung for at least 300 years, perhaps before the song was written, they were singing it in a different version. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Or take this rich verse from another old hymn written by an 18th century vicar with a really cool name, Augustus Montague Toplady. Would you like to be called that? A debtor to mercy alone of covenant, God's sure promise, of covenant mercy I sing. God has promised mercy and it's certain, it's sure. Of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with your righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Do you feel free to let your heart go in praise of our God? I invite you to agree with the words of those songs. You can even say amen. You can even say it out loud if you want. Or maybe allow your face to smile just a little. I reckon Top Lady must have smiled a lot as he wrote these words in another song of his. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, my efforts, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? Can I weep enough to receive God's grace? <clears throat> no. All for sin could not atone. You must save, <clears throat> and you alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. He goes on. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We can read chapters like Romans 8 with joy. Romans 8 starts, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Towards the end, it nearly ends with, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then? is the one who condemns no one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We're going to be, uh, possibly, I think, is this true? We're going to be doing a series that's going to be thinking about this kind of work of Jesus after Easter, or at least we're thinking about doing that series. I'm really excited about thinking about what Jesus is doing, interceding for us now. We can sing with confidence firmly on Jesus who lived, died, rose again, and returned to the Father for our salvation. You know the song, perhaps some of you, before the throne of God above, have a strong, a perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. I want to carry on with that song, but perhaps we'll stop there. But I wonder, are you basking? Are you enjoying you're basking in the mercy of God at this time. I don't mean just now, here. 
Are you enjoying God's mercy in your personal worship life throughout the week? It's the enjoyment of God's mercy overflowing in your serving and your, in your blessing of colleagues and family and classmates and friends. What effect is God's mercy having on your life? Our problem is not that we're too bad. Our problem is that we're too proud, too sophisticated, too superior, too grown up. This is where the third part of our passage comes in this morning. Jesus says we're to dependently receive God's kingdom as children. Verses 15 to 17. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, "This probably weren't actually babies, probably more little children, because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to come to him. They called children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. People who share in the kingdom of God do so only through childlike trust and reliance. The response that's required is not like how we might respond if a cold caller rings our phone or knocks at the door and asks if we'd like to receive a free trip to the Caribbean. Ardell might get particularly excited, but that's not the response. That kind of, you know that response? I don't want to talk to this person. I hope you'd respond with doubt, with skepticism. What's the catch? They're not really offering me a free holiday. Rather, the response is required is more like a child might respond to their dad, asking them if they'd like to go on holiday. The child can't pay their way. The child might not know where the distant land of Wales is or how to get there. Or what they will do, or what they will be to do when they get there. But they will trust dad and gladly be taken on holiday with him. The child trusts the father and gladly and humbly receives a welcome into the kingdom of God. This is dependent faith. I love teenagers. Just say that before I say the next thing. Maybe some of us have an attitude more like questioning, exploring teenagers. Some of us perhaps even have an attitude like cynical adults. We will not enter the kingdom of God unless we turn from these attitudes and humbly accept it, dependent on the mercy of God our Father, trusting in his love for us, which he has shown us in his son Jesus, who calls us to this childlike, dependent faith. And let's just be clear, by childlike faith, Jesus doesn't mean the Richard Dawkins kind of faith, believing something you know not to be true, that's what he would say faith is. That's not faith, that's delusion. It's not, it's not that Jesus is saying, children are stupid, be like stupid children. That's not what Jesus is saying. Faith is trust based on evidence. So a child with a good father has evidence on which to readily accept and depend and trust in their father. Because he has always evidenced himself worthy of that trust and dependence. And so, too, there's plenty of evidence we can reasonably and intelligently base our faith on and receive the kingdom of God. God doesn't ask us to leave our brain at the door as if it's some kind of pair of muddy boots. Take a look around you. See these people, these mostly intelligent people, all right, all intelligent people, with these wonderful bodies, 
Did you notice the sun this morning providing the perfect amount of light and heat and yet not too much that we've burnt up and consumed? Did you notice the effects of gravity today? You seem to have got through the door okay and remained on your seats quite comfortably. The universe is running in perfect balance, perfect conditions for intricate, complex life forms to exist. Life forms that scream intelligent design. Or let's consider some historical evidence, the most significant historical evidence. Where's the body of Jesus? Where's the body of Jesus? In the tomb in which he was buried? No, that's empty. Stolen by his disciples, unlikely considering it's never been found and many of them died for an alternative version of events and the fact that it was guarded as well. Moved by the authorities, again, has, has never been found. But even more unlikely is the fact that they could have quashed an uprising and, and halted the birth of the church by just showing the dead body of Jesus. But they couldn't, they didn't, because they didn't have it. No one had it. Why? The evidence points to what Jesus said would happen. He rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, that is prime evidence that he's who he said he is. We could talk about the other signs he performed. We could consider evidence for the reliability of the gospel accounts. There is much evidence. Will we receive the kingdom of God humbly like a dependent child? Jesus is quite clear. If you won't, then you will never enter it. That's the main message of this third section. But there's another thing we can observe briefly as we finish. And this, I think, is really timely for us as a church family. A happy side effect of this counter is that Jesus affirms the place of children in the life of his new community. And not only affirms their place, but sets them as an example for adults to, in some sense, learn from. One of the things I love about youth work and have done for years is the questions young people ask. I rarely hear an adult ask the kind of thoughtful, deep questions I've heard young people and children ask. I've grown so much, God has taught me so much through having to think through the things that they think about, or that you think about. So often our tendency can be towards patronizing our children and young people and failing to recognize how deep their thinking is. And Jesus calls us not only to recognize them, but to learn from them. We're about to face significant challenges in our children's ministry at Portswood Church. Angela will leave a huge gap behind her. But those challenges are also opportunities for others to step up. Opportunities for new people to be involved in this exciting ministry of leading our children and not just leading them, but learning from them. And I'm not just talking about the new staff role, I'm talking about the needs on teams. Do you want to learn from children? Do you want God to teach you and grow you? And of course, it's really sad that Angela needs to step down from this role and we're really behind her in a decision. But I'm starting to be a little bit excited. Don't get me wrong, I'm very sad, but I'm starting to be a little bit excited, particularly since a moment, a time when we were praying about this as elders and it struck me that instead of just praying that God would maintain the work, that he'd keep things going without Angela, we started to pray that God would raise up and release new leaders, that new parts in the body would be deployed, as it were. This is such an opportunity. And if that resonates with you, then maybe God might be laying something on your heart. 
Please don't hold back from approaching us about it. Anyway, here we go. So we have a PhD in prayer. We've all done a doctor, doctoral studies this morning. Uh, PhD in prayer. P, persistently cry for God's justice. H, humbly plea for God's mercy. D, dependently receive God's kingdom. When he returns, will Jesus find such persistent, humble, dependent faith in me? Will he find such persistent, dependent, humble faith in you? Let's get on with it.